You ready? Palm Sunday. That's today. Uh, which begins what is called Holy Week. This week, uh, the week leading to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. If you, in the New Testament, there are four stories of Jesus' life written from four different perspectives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Jesus lived on this earth about 33 years. He ministered for about three years. But 25% of the, these biographies is dedicated to this final week of Jesus' life. On Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today, Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. It was five days before his crucifixion on Good Friday, one week before his resurrection on Easter Sunday. So for the next two Sundays, we're going to be pausing from our series in the book of Colossians and focusing on these events of Holy Week. But even though we won't be in Colossians, we'll still focus on the main theme of that series, which is, anyone? The supremacy of Christ. You guys are so good. You, you've been here. Supreme, the supremacy of Christ. Supreme means uh, the highest, the greatest of all, the utmost, the best of the best. To be supreme means there is none greater. And on this first Palm Sunday, when Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, his supremacy was on display. And today, it's my hope, it's my prayer, that we'll see his supremacy, his greatness, and his glory. And more than that, we'll savor it. That we'll taste and see that the Lord is not only good, but he is supreme. Because it's when we see and savor the greatness and glory of the Lord that we're drawn to Him, that we come to Him, that we trust in Him, that we worship Him, that we honor Him, that we glorify Him. And experiencing, and it's also when we come to Him that we experience His transforming presence in our lives. So would you pray with me today for this Palm Sunday message? that for God's glory and for our good, it will cause us to see and to savor our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, I, I pray as we approach your word, as we come and we examine this triumphal entry, Father, I pray you would open our hearts, that we would see you for who you truly are, that we would savor your greatness, your supremacy, Lord, and it would bring transformation to our lives that each one of us here, no matter where we are today, that we would be drawn closer to you, to relationship with you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now to see Christ's supremacy on that first Palm Sunday, we need to understand several Palm Sunday misconceptions. When Jesus entered Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd, they were certainly seeing his supremacy. But their sight was only partial. It was limited. Because they, as a people, had some underlying misconceptions about who, who Jesus was and exactly what he had come to do. The words of the crowd were correct when they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is an exclamation of adoration, meaning Oh, save us, we pray. And Son of David is, is a reference to the Messiah. 
It's a Hebrew Messiah. Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah. Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name. It's not a cuss word, and it's not his last name. It just means Jesus, the Messiah. And so this is pointing, Son of David is pointing to this Messiah. Messiah literally means anointed one. And the Old Testament scriptures promise that one day, God would send an anointed descendant of King David to deliver, to save his people and establish a kingdom that would continue forever, an eternal kingdom. That's who the crowd is saying Jesus is. Also, once Jesus entered Jerusalem, some asked, who is this? And the crowd responded, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. As the people cheer, uh, shout, wave palm branches, lay down their coats, that's why we're just so... To be clear, that's why we're collecting the, cloak, the coats today. It's in memory of, of the laying down of the cloaks and coats before Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. So as they're uh, shouting, they're seeing and declaring the supremacy of, of Jesus. Why? Because they believed he was their promised Messiah. That he is the prophet king coming to establish a kingdom, coming to bring salvation Sounds pretty good, right? Seems like they were right on. However, they had some underlying misconceptions about what kind of Messiah, King, and prophet Jesus was and what kind of kingdom he would establish. They, the Jews of Jesus' day, including his closest disciples, believed that their Messiah would come and restore the earthly kingdom of Israel for the Jews. But we know, hindsight, 2020, that Jesus came to establish a heavenly kingdom for all who would trust in him, both Jew and Gentile. They also had a misconception about the salvation Jesus would bring. They believed that he, he would come and in some way, fire from heaven like Elijah, I don't know. He would defeat the Romans and he would save them the Jewish people who were under the oppressive rule of Rome. But instead, Jesus was coming to save them and us from sin. The Jews of Jesus' day didn't understand that their main problem was not Roman oppression, but their own sinful hearts. Now, how do we know that the crowds and even the disciples shared this misconception? Because among other things, in only a few short days... When Jesus was arrested, and it became clear that he was not going to save them from Rome, that he was not, at least at this time, going to restore the kingdom of Israel, all his disciples deserted him. At least one of his disciples denied him. And some of the same people who shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Palm Sunday, were probably those who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, on Good Friday, the crowd and the disciples had an underlying misconception about who Jesus was. They had a limited view of his supremacy. They had an earthly view of his supremacy, as we'll see. They didn't understand the great and glorious purpose for which he had come. And when they found out, when they found out he wasn't going to do what they expected, what they wanted, they quickly turned away from him. And some even turned on him. Judas might be a good example of this. 
And before we rush to judgment, don't we often do the same thing? Don't we have misconceptions about God, about Jesus? And don't those misconceptions lead to wrong expectations? And when God doesn't meet those wrong expectations, aren't we prone to turn away, turn away from Him or even to turn against Him? For example, we rightly believe, as the Apostle John wrote, that God is love. Everybody likes that part of God, right? God is love. But our underlying misconception often is that because God is love, He shouldn't, we make the moral judgment, He shouldn't allow bad, evil things to happen to us, to others in the world. And therefore, when when these things happen, these bad, evil things happen, we accuse God and often turn from Him. We say, or at least we think, things like, how can a God of love allow sickness, death, financial problems, relationship problems, horrible crime, terrible trauma, tragic war, and the list goes on and on. And when we accuse God, we reveal our lack of understanding of who He truly is. We show our doubt in His sovereignty, in His supremacy. We show that our trust in Him is limited by His willingness to follow the script we've written. If God doesn't behave as I believe He should, as I desire Him to, then I'm out. That, my friends, is utter uh, foolishness. Because the Bible teaches that God has a a different, a greater, a supremer, if you will, set of priorities than we do. If God the Creator chose to follow the script of His creation, He would not be God at all. In the book of Isaiah, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And the heavens are really a lot higher than the earth, just so we're clear. There's a big gap here, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We don't think or act the way God does. We don't share His priorities. Our lower thoughts and ways tend to prioritize the earthly, the temporal, where we are now. While God's higher, supreme thoughts and ways always prioritize the heavenly, the eternal. That doesn't mean God ignores the earthly and temporal. It means He's working in the earthly and temporal for His heavenly, eternal purposes. And because of that, we who live in the earthly and temporal are wise to trust not in ourselves, but in Him. When we don't understand what's going on, we we can't figure it out, when it doesn't seem to be going according to our plans, we need to trust not in ourselves, but in Him. As as the wisest man who ever lived, apparently, I mean, Scripture says, Solomon, I mean, besides Jesus, of course, wrote, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Wisdom demands our full trust in the Lord because God's thoughts and ways are higher. They're better than ours. Our thoughts are often filled with uh, misconceptions, but His never are. God sees everything clearly exactly as it truly is. So on Palm Sunday, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, 
the disciples, the crowd, uh, their lower thoughts, they seem pretty good, but their really lower thoughts are on the restoration of the earthly kingdom of Israel and the salvation from the Romans for the Jews. Not bad things, but not what God is planning. Jesus' higher supreme thoughts are on the establishment of a new heavenly kingdom and salvation from sin for all who trust in Him. His thoughts are higher, supreme. His ways are always better. Therefore, the script He's written for our lives is far greater than the one that, that we write. So as we now turn to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, knowing what's to come, let's see beyond what the crowd sees. Let us savor Jesus' glorious supremacy, allowing God's Word to correct any misconceptions that we might have about Him, so that we might today, no matter who we are, no matter where we are in our relationship with God, no matter what we've done, that we might fully trust in Him, that we might come to Him. So first, let us see Jesus as the supreme God. Maybe the greatest misconception throughout history since Jesus walked this earth, this greatest misconception, the greatest false teaching about Jesus is that He was merely a good man, maybe even a great man, a, a, mortal, a moral teacher, but He was not God. And despite C.S. Lewis's brilliant, logical, liar-lunatic Lord argument, which we'll not get into today, but is contained in his book, Mere Christianity, which I recommend to all, this misconception of Jesus being less than God is what most world, most world religions and Christian cults share. This is the dividing line often between truth and falsehood. Who is Jesus really? They may, as the crowd on Palm Sunday did, call him a prophet. But they will not acknowledge his supremacy as the one and only God. We certainly have seen this. If you've been with us in our study, our series in Colossians, there were false teachers in Colossae proclaiming that Jesus was, was something, but he was less than God. But in uh, Colossians 1.19, Paul responds by writing, For in Christ... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ was the embodiment of God. God come in human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. If you want to see God, the invisible God, look to Jesus where God fully dwells. Also, Jesus himself points to his own divinity in a number of places in the Gospels. Maybe one of the clearest is found in John chapter 10. The Jews had come to Jesus... They were asking him a question. They wanted him to tell them plainly, tell us, Jesus, are you the Messiah or not? Are you the Christ? And after rebuking them for not recognizing him already by what he was saying and what he was doing, he makes this statement, I and the Father are one. And for this, the Jews tried to stone him, saying, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They were clear that Jesus was calling himself God. The New Testament, again and again, proclaims that Jesus is God. We, this, we see this claim reinforced by Jesus' by words and his actions on that first Palm Sunday. 
As he draws near to Jerusalem, he sends two disciples into the village of Bethphage. And in verses 2 and 3, we read his instructions to them. Go into the village in front of you, because they hadn't reached it yet, so it's in front of them. And immediately you'll find a donkey tied, a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Jesus ordains, or he knows, he's omnipotent, omnipotent, either, either way, where a donkey and colt will be at a certain time for a certain purpose. By his actions, he re- reinforces his divinity. Then he says, in verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. The title Lord in the rest of the book of Matthew is only used to refer to God. But Jesus uses it to refer to himself. The language is not our master, our teacher, our rabbi needs him, but the Lord God needs him. By his own words, Jesus reinforces his claim to be God. So so see the supremacy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. As he enters Jerusalem for the final time, he enters not as a, a good moral teacher, Not even as a mere prophet. He enters as the Lord of all creation. He enters as God. And what does this mean? Even though the crowd has misconceptions about him, he has no misconceptions about what lay before him. He knows the truth. He knows what his disciples and the crowd do not. They're welcoming him into Jerusalem. They're hoping he's coming to restore the kingdom of Israel and save them from Roman rule. They're expecting him to rise up and in great power defeat their enemies. But Jesus knows he's just five days away from being crucified by these same enemies. The crowd is cheering, but Jesus knows that the vast majority of his people will will reject him. Luke, in his account of the triumphal entry, gives us insight into Jesus' divine emotions at this time. And when he drew near, chapter 19, verse 41 of Luke, and when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, as he's coming in, this triumphal entry, and he finally sees the city, he wept over it. Jesus wept for the people of Jerusalem, who would in less than a week reject him as their Messiah. And yet he doesn't hesitate. He continues on his journey to the cross. See the supremacy of Jesus, who is God come in human flesh, and see why he came. Not to restore the kingdom of Israel, not to save the Jews from Roman oppression, but to establish a new, heavenly, eternal kingdom. To bring salvation from sin's dreadful oppression to all who trust in him. And that's our second point. See Jesus as the supreme Savior. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he comes to save In Zechariah 9.9, which is the Old Testament passage that Matthew is quoting from, in chapter 21, verse 5 that we've read, uh, we read, this is Zechariah, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he. This prophesied king is righteous, sinless, and therefore he alone can be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He comes having salvation. He comes bringing salvation. Based on the Old Testament scripture like Zechariah, as we've seen, the Jewish people believed that one day God would send a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior, 
And on that first Palm Sunday, we see that many believed that day had come. This is a huge day for them. In Matthew 21, 8 and 9, we read, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd, this is like, this is like the red carpet treatment. Welcome him in. And the crowds that were before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, Hosanna means save us. And Son of David points to the, the messianic deliverer. So the crowd believed or, or hoped that Jesus was their Savior. But unfortunately, as we've seen, they thought he was coming to save them from Roman oppression. No one on that first Palm Sunday, not even his closest disciples, were connecting the dots. They, weren't, they didn't understand that this messianic Savior King of Zechariah 9 was also the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Of the Savior and how he would save Isaiah right, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The crowds didn't understand that the Messiah would save his people from their sin by his own suffering being smitten by God and afflicted, by being pierced for our transgressions, by being crushed for our iniquities, by having our sins laid upon Him. The crowds didn't know what was coming, but Jesus did. He knew He was headed for a sacrificial death on the cross. Don't forget, before Holy Week was Holy Week, it was Passover week. Jerusalem at this time was filled with people coming to celebrate God's deliverance of their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. They're celebrating that the angel of death had passed over the homes that had been marked by the blood of a lamb on the top and on the sides, every door. But they didn't understand that as they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, they're welcoming one who John the Baptist declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See the supremacy of Jesus who is the Savior, who by His sacrificial death on the cross saves all who trust in, them, in Him from their sins. Now before we move to our final point, I want to deal with two misconceptions about salvation through Jesus Christ. First, many, I would say probably most people in this world throughout history believe that there are many ways to be saved. That there are many ways to reach God or heaven or paradise or nirvana or eternal peace or whatever you want to call it. That all religions are equal and valid and all religions teach basically the same thing that all religions lead basically to the same place. A few weeks ago, I took my wife, Christina, to a Carrie Underwood concert for her birthday. Yes, I'm awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Just kidding. And a singer 
a name Jimmy Allen opened for her, not my wife, but for Carrie Underwood. One of his most popular songs is titled, uh, if you, anybody familiar with Jimmy Allen? Oh, he's not that great. Anyway, he's good, uh, but as a country singer goes. One of his most popular songs is a song titled Pray, which seems good, like, right? I like prayer. But the chorus goes like this. I've been losing my religion. I've been in and out of faith. What it is and what it isn't. Well, it's not for me to say. We stand in different churches. We call it different names. But in the end, we pray. Basically, Jimmy is saying or singing that your religion, your church, your faith doesn't, doesn't make a difference. It doesn't, doesn't even seem to matter who you pray to as long as you just pray. As long as you're looking to or having faith in something, as long as you believe in something, that's good. And if that's the case, if Jimmy uh, and others, many others, are right, then Jesus is at best just one of many gods to pray to. One of many ways, one one of many things to have faith in. Just one of many ways to be saved. But that's not what the Word of God teaches. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, speaking of himself, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, who is God, entered our world on a mission. That mission was to seek and to save the lost. Now think about what that really means. Think about what Jesus had to do to seek and to save the lost. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians, Jesus Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For Jesus to seek and to save the lost, he had to empty himself. He had to set aside, if you will, his divine power. He had to become a servant. He, the supreme creator of all, had to become a created being, a human being. And then he had to humble himself by willingly obeying his Father, resulting in his sacrificial death on a cross. A terrible way to die. A death which involved being smitten by God and afflicted being pierced for our transgressions, being crushed for our iniquities, having our sins laid upon Him. So the question is, excuse me, why in God's name would Jesus do all of this if there was many ways, any other way for people to be saved? Why would He sacrifice so much to seek and save the lost if there were many ways for the lost to be saved? Or one other way for the lost to be saved. In fact, on Thursday of Holy Week, the day before he was crucified, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Father, if it's possible, if there's any other way to bring salvation to this sinful people, let this cup pass from me. I do not desire to be smitten and afflicted and pierced and crushed. I do not want to have the sins of humanity laid upon me. I do not 
want what results, what we find at the crucifixion. Being forsaken by the Father. I don't want to experience the wrath of God. But as you will, he says. If there was any other way for you and me to be saved, then Jesus would have never gone to the cross. But there was no other way. There's no other way for a sinful people to be saved. There's no way for us to save ourselves. That's why John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Period. See and savor the supremacy of Christ, who through great cost to himself, provides us with the one and only way to be saved. And how do we take advantage of what Christ has provided? Well, that brings us to the second misconception about salvation. The first being that there are many ways to be saved. The second, many people and really all religions besides biblical Christianity... And I say biblical Christianity because there are plenty of people who call themselves Christians that believe what I'm about to say, this misconception. They teach that we must in some way earn our salvation. That we must be good enough for God to save us. That our good works must outweigh our bad. But again, that's not what the Word of God teaches. As, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The salvation that Jesus alone provides is a free gift of God's amazing grace. It's not based on who you are, on what you do, on what you don't do. It's not based on your good works, as if a sinful people could muster up enough good works to mean anything, to be truly good. It's not something we can earn. It's given only to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's given only to those who stop trusting in themselves and instead trust fully in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for their sins. Having faith that your sins have been laid upon Him. That His death is the one and only sufficient sacrifice because He alone is supreme and glorious. He's the only supreme and glorious Savior. So we've seen Jesus is the supreme Savior. And that there's no other way to be saved but through faith in Christ. Now, to, to put our faith in Christ, we must truly see who He is. We must fully see Him. And that takes us to our final point today. Yes, Jesus is the supreme God and Savior, but we must also see Jesus as the supreme King. When we talk about Jesus' triumphal entry, uh, this is the point often made about Him. I think, uh, I've, I think I've, you know, you preach uh, on Palm Sunday for years and you got four passages to choose from, and I've done them differently. I think... I think one of them, I can't remember which gospel, I, the, path, the, the main mess, the message is, a different kind of king. He's a different kind of king. Jesus is entering Jerusalem as king. That's what all the cheering and the coats and the hosannas are signifying. 
The people are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as their king, son of David. This is the, uh, Jesus' public coronation, if you will. And Matthew in verses 4 and 5, quoting from Zechariah 9, makes this clear. He writes, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah was prophesying in his day to God's people after they'd come back uh, from exile. So they had been in, if you remember our study in Daniel, they went into exile Judah for 70 years, and now they're coming back. Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilding the walls and the temple. A remnant of Israel came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and reestablish the city. And Zechariah is bringing to them, they're coming under attack. They're getting some persecution from the surrounding nations, and Zechariah brings them encouragement. Because in the history of Israel, if you've uh, read your Bible in a month like Sean did, I've never done that. I started trying and then I gave up. Anyway, uh, I got to wait till I retire, I guess. Because in the history of Israel, they'd endured failed king after failed king after failed king. Remember in the northern kingdom, like there were zero good kings, and in the southern there were a couple. And we had David, who was, that's why it's the son of David, he's the First good king, and then his son, even Solomon, was sort of half-hearted about the whole thing. So the, 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 the history of kingness in Israel was not awesome. So Zechariah holds out this hope before them, promising a day when God will send his king to them. Again, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Rejoice greatly. Be happy. Shout. Your king is coming to you. The king is righteous and has or brings salvation. And notice, unlike most kings... Uh, He's humble. He's not pushy. He comes mounted on a donkey, a sign of humility. He doesn't come in in this chariot. He's not coming on this uh, amazing steed. I think of uh, Shrek. He's riding in on donkey. What what was his name? His name was Donkey. Right, that's all. He didn't deserve. He was just a donkey. That's all his name was. He's not coming to forcefully take over. He's not coming to lead an uprising. He's not coming to physically conquer. Instead, Zechariah 9.10 says, He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. He speaks peace to the nations. His kingdom extends to all nations. His rule to all peoples. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of all peoples. Now that word peace is the Hebrew shalom. It includes the ideas of completeness, of of safety, of welfare. I wish you completeness. I wish you safety. I wish you welfare and friendship and tranquility. The message of peace the king brings is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a message of peace, shalom, between God and man. Since the fall, uh, uh, the sin, the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the beginning Humanity has not been at peace with God. 
By our sin, we show ourselves to be in continual rebellion against our Creator. That's our our natural state. We're born sinners, born separated, born in rebellion against God. And if the king were to come to make war against a rebellious people, that would be just. But instead, he comes with an offer of peace. Peace that satisfies his justice through the sacrificial death of his son. This king freely gave his life for his subjects because he is also the Savior. He is, as Paul says in Romans, just and the justifier. And when we trust in him, we're justified. We're reconciled to God. We enter into relationship with God. We have peace, completeness, safety, safety, welfare, friendship, and tranquility with God. He brings shalom to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He comes with a message of peace, but never, ever forget he's a king. He's the supreme ruler over all. That word rule means to have dominion, authority over. Jesus' message of peace is also a message of surrender to His supreme authority. Peace only comes to those who fully surrender to the King. And that brings us to our final misconception. And this is one that that causes so many quote-unquote Christians so much trouble. We wrongly believe that we can trust Jesus as our Savior, but not live for Him as our Lord. I just finished reading, uh, I think he wrote it in 2018 or 19, Greg Laurie's book on the life and faith of Johnny Cash. And this was certainly Johnny's misconception. He never doubted that Jesus was his one and only Savior, but he often had difficulty surrendering to Jesus' kingship, his lordship. This led to drug addiction, to adultery, to divorce, and many other destructive things in his life. Johnny wrongly believed or or lived as if he could receive Jesus Christ as Savior and not surrender to Him as Lord and King. And he is certainly not alone in this. The church is filled with people who want Jesus to save them from their sins, but continue living in their sins in rebellion against their King. And let me be very clear, this is not an option. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you must put your faith in all of Jesus Christ, not just the part that you're needing that day. It's like when you get married. You're committing yourself to an entire individual. Pardon me, but you can't just have the physical body. You get the mind. You get the will. You get the emotions. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. And the same is true when you enter into relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And we must marry, take, receive all of Him. When you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you must also trust and obey Him as your God and King. You must trust Him to rule and reign in your life. You must trust Him for all He is, not just part This is pictured in the triumphal entry. Just as Jesus entered Jerusalem as both Savior and King, Jesus will only enter our lives as both Savior 
and king. Because he can't be less than he is. He's God and he's king. And when we receive him as our savior, when we put our trust in him, we're putting our trust in the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And therefore, being at peace with God means surrendering to his authority in our life. You become a subject of the king. You bow before the king. As Paul makes clear to the church in Corinth, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? I know people want, this is the verse that we got to be physically healthy and keep ourselves in shape. Okay, whatever. That's not the point. Your body is the temple within you, who you have from God. This is the point. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Live for God. Do actions. Live out the faith that you profess. When Jesus, the Son of God, enters your life, yes, praise the Lord, He comes to save you. He, came, he sought you and He bought you with His redeeming love. I love to... Oh, that's a song, sorry. Praise the Lord. He comes as your Savior. He saves us from our sin and He saves us to an eternal kingdom in His presence. But praise the Lord. This is also good news, just so we're clear. The Lord also enters as your King. When He gives us, uh, he gives us this amazing gift of His Spirit, His Spirit comes to dwell within us. He establishes His kingdom, His righteous kingdom in our hearts and in our minds. And He comes to transform who we are. No longer serving other kings, including and especially ourselves. We no longer get to write the script for our lives. We turn that over to our King. We serve, we obey, we trust, and surrender to King Jesus alone. Amen? So today, I pray we've seen and savored, at least in part, I mean, this is just, you know, there's, there's more. Jesus is more. But we focused on these things today. We've seen, at least in part, His supremacy. And I hope we've dispelled some common misconceptions about Him. We've seen that Jesus is not just a good moral teacher, not just a prophet, but the supreme God come in human flesh. We've seen that it, it's not through our works, but through trusting in His sacrificial death alone that we're saved, that He alone is the supreme Savior. We've seen that He offers peace, reconciliation with God to all who surrender to His rule, that He is the supreme King. And so the question is, now that you've seen His supremacy, His greatness, His glory, will you come to Him? He says, if you're not for me, you're against me. The, so it's a, it's a dividing line. Will you come to Him? There's no walking the fence. Will you surrender your life to Him? Will you put your trust in Him as your God, your Savior, your King? As the ushers and the worship team come forward to serve communion, I'd invite you to pray with me. Father God, we come into Your presence asking You to work in our hearts, to draw us to Yourself. Lord, help us come to You, to trust in You as Savior and Lord, to allow You to be our King. We confess our, our great need for You. We confess our sins and our need for the salvation Your sacrificial death provides.
Thank you for being smitten for our transgressions. That our iniquities, our sins were laid upon you. We trust in you alone as a one and only Savior. And we surrender our lives to you as King. Take control of our lives. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. I pray by His power we come to overcome the sin in our lives. And seek to love and serve you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If that prayer uh, resonated in your heart, if today you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then, then I'd encourage you to let someone know. Let me know. We'd, I, I would love, we'd love to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. And as we now turn to the Lord's table, a time of communion for all who've trusted in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, I'd invite all who believe to join us in celebrating His supremacy, remembering what Christ has done for us. Liam is going to lead us in a song as the elements are distributed. Well, as they're uh, passing out the elements, if you'd like to stand with me as we do our last song, or if you prefer.